0: If I just think about this world we inhabit now, so many of the challenges before us are really existential challenges for our species. And they are populated by vast, open questions. These questions do not have answers right now. And the purpose of a question, which is what we forget in our our love of answers, even if they are kind of always temporary, is we forget that the purpose of a question and some of the best questions can be that it is something to dwell with, to sit with, to live with. When a question doesn't have a ready answer, in fact, demands of us that we sit with the question itself. Like That's, that's what we're called to do, to hold the question, to love the question itself, to try to live our way into the answer.
1: Welcome to Freedom Matters, where we explore the intersection of technology, productivity, and digital well-being. I'm your host, Georgie Powell, and each episode we'll be talking to experts in productivity and digital wellness. We'll be sharing their experiences on how to take back control of technology. We hope you leave feeling inspired, so let's get to it. In this mini-series, we'll be exploring how technology shapes ourselves. We'll be shining a light on some of the most powerful human instincts to seek answers, to heal, to motivate, to come together and unpicking how technology may be impacting the way in which we breathe life into those fundamentals. We start this week by speaking with globally renowned journalist Krista Tippett. Krista is a Peabody award-winning broadcaster, a National Humanities Medalist, and a New York Times best-selling author. She grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, attended Brown University, and became a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin. She then lived in Spain and England before seeking a Masters of Divinity at Yale University in the mid-1990s. Emerging from that, she saw a black hole where intelligent public conversation about the religious, spiritual, and moral aspects of human life might be, and came to launch On Being, a weekly NPR show to fill this hole. In 2014, the year after she took On Being into independent production, President Obama awarded Krista the National Humanities Medal for thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. In this episode, we discuss the importance of questions, how asking the right questions and accepting that there may never be an answer can help us to know ourselves better whilst enabling society to grow. We discuss the role of technology in our rush for answers, media's role in the portrayal of society, and just how Krista, through her career in exploring humanity, has come to understand herself. Krista, thank you so much for joining us for the Freedom Matters podcast, especially on International Women's Day. You can't see it right now, but I am (laughs) beaming with this this privilege of being able to speak to you today. So really, thank you so much for your time.
0: I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm I'm grateful for freedom. It's <laughs> a big statement, and I guess it has many layers of meaning.
1: <laughs> um, I want to start, and obviously, so much of what you do is about asking questions in the right order. And I've been learning from you a lot about that and thinking about what my opening question should be to you. (laughs) No pressure. You generally start with this question of getting your guests to explore their spiritual background, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Where I'd like to start with you is your work has been defined by your ability to ask really beautiful questions. And then of course, to actively listen to to the conversation that follows from those questions when did you first realize that questions were so important and that Mm. you wanted to devote really your life to to asking the right questions
0: that is an excellent question (laughs) um you know so i'm thinking back to my earliest life i grew up in a small town in the middle of america um And it was a very religious upbringing, but but that was really just part of the culture as much as it was about being religious. But it was a world where answers were really important, (laughs) where there were rules that were not to be broken and answers for everything that weren't big enough for reality. And I think that I felt that in my body and as I kind of started reading and just as my mind turned on, if I think about myself as an adolescent, as a teenager, I feel like I was living in a place where the important questions weren't being asked of the answers given or just of the possibilities. And and so I, th- I think that my love for soaring questions actually came out of the absence of them uh, <laughs> in the world I grew up in, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I think your relationship with questions is quite interesting
1: because you it seems to me you embrace this idea that a question doesn't have to have an answer. It's almost like Hmm. you've gone full circle. You've gone from a world where there were just answers to now being comfortable with questions. Can you explain that a little bit more to me? Yeah.
0: Well, the truth is that we live in societies that are very you know, very in love with having answers. And, and by answers, I also mean firm opinions, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And we, we have this drive, which I understand, which is human. We have this drive to fix things and resolve them. And if a question is raised, to answer it and move on, move past it. And the truth is, I mean, if I just think about um, this world we inhabit now, so many of the challenges before us are really existential challenges for our species, and they are populated by vast open questions. These questions do not have answers right now. And the purpose of a question, which is what we forget in our our love of answers, even if they are kind of always temporary, is we forget that questions aren't made. Like the, like the purpose of a question and some of the best questions can be that it is something to dwell with, to mull over, to sit with, to live with. And, and you've possibly heard me quote Rainer Maria Rilke on when a question doesn't have a ready answer in fact demands of us that we sit with the question itself like that's that's what we're called to do to hold the question to love the question itself to try to live our way into the answer and i think that's a definition of life in this time and it's uncomfortable but i do also believe that you know we know this in science and we need to know it better in society that the quality of the answers we arrive at is going to depend on how much care we are willing to give um, to frame the questions we're going to live into and then Mm -hmm. to throw ourselves behind that with all the patience and creativity that may require of us. So interesting and I'm
1: desperate to ask you what you think technology's role is in in, in all this, and in in yeah. our in our rush to oh. to answer and to find the answers to questions all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ah. But I'm, I'm gonna I'm not gonna ask you that question yet. Okay. I'm gonna wait because before, okay. before I want to understand a little bit more about you oh. first. And um, another quote that I read about you, which I I thought was really interesting, is about how you interview. And this this I think came from the New York Times that you are a fusion of all your um, parts of your life, basically, you know, a child of small town church, comfortable in the pews, um, the product of Yale Divinity School, but also, perhaps most importantly, um, a diplomat seeking to resolve social divisions. And I just wondered, when you hear definitions like that, Of yourself as an interviewer and someone who asks questions and obviously curates your guests. Do you think that's a fair representation of who you also are and who Mm. you understand
0: yourself to be? Yeah, I received that. That's somebody else's description of me. And I have to say it was, it felt like a a revelation. It felt like I was learning (laughs) something about myself, which can sometimes be the great gift of being invited to see yourself from the outside. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think all of those impulses are in the asking of questions for me. And the diplomat part is about really wanting to ask a question that is generative, that is going to invite the best from the person to whom the question is being addressed. And and that takes a lot of care Mm -hmm. and a lot of forethought and also discipline of, of real curiosity and really wanting to be surprised by the answer someone gives you and hoping to learn something and hoping that the exchange will actually be meaningful for them as well and all those things I just said about this quality of engagement are very countercultural at present, where mm-hmm. this is true in the U.S. I, I It's true with, with different, you know, with different particularities. It's also true in the U.K. I, I know it's true in other places right now. We're very hardened in our identities and our stances and our trenches, whether those are political or some other aspect of our identity. And too often, we tend to walk into any room or any conversation, um, especially with people we don't know, thinking that we know so much about them because of one opinion they hold, one aspect of their identity. Mm. And so to soften out of that where that's possible and where that can be generative really t- takes some some like, intentionality these days. Yeah. And that intentionality
1: for me, listening to your work is so clear and it's so clear with how you bring the light out of stories, particularly in a world where, as you say, it's kind of, there is this rush, there's this sense of rush for answers, but there's also this, what seems like a a magnified negativity bias that we have, particularly Mm -hmm. through the media. And, and for me anyway, your work is like an antidote (laughs) to that in so many ways, Uh, I know that's intentional, but I'd love to understand more about why you've chosen to approach these conversations in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think I would come at that in a couple of levels. I am interested in looking at whatever the subject is through the lens of the human condition. And something that is so foundational and that is manifesting in ways that are at times really catastrophic is that we're all living out of a lot of fear. Mm. And we know how fear manifests in a human body. And I think that fear is manifesting in our collective body as well. It leads us to be combative, right? Mm. To fight, to flee, to become paralyzed or in denial or deflect on a really simple level. I think there are many callings. For life in this time, and one of them is to be a calmer of fear. And that may sound really mild, but the truth is that again, the challenges that we face, the remaking of the world really mm. that our generation in time is called to needs our highest capacities. It needs, you know, our highest cognitive skills kind of online to use the language of technology. And our, our brains don't fully come online when we're living out of fear. Our creativity doesn't come fully online when we're living out of fear. So, So I'm always thinking about that. The move I'm talking about is not denying or not making space for acknowledging the gravity of what we're up against or the gravity of any given subject that I'm talking about. But it is about drawing out the fuller picture. And that also means the full potentiality of a human being and of, of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive now. And I started my career as a journalist and as a news reporter. I, I do consider myself a journalist with, with a different kind of format, but I I see that even in our most sophisticated places, in journalism, in medicine, and in, in health, we're very focused on, you know, you use the word language of negativity, we're very focused on dysfunction. Uh, right? We're very good at like analyzing dysfunction, investigating it and exposing it. And, and there's a place for that. But it feels important to me f- to work in my little corner for also, can we get as sophisticated at analyzing and investigating and exposing what happens when things go well what happens when we rise to our best potentials what makes for the conditions for us to do that
1: mm.
0: what is being discovered and generatively made in this time alongside right alongside the things that are destructive and that are distorting us part of it what you brings you and and me together is is technology and and technology is to me, the internet is, on some basic level, a new canvas for the old human condition, but it, it has the power to magnify everything. Yeah. And, right, and it is a place where the absolute worst of our humanity finds expression and the best of our humanity finds expression. But we don't know how to talk about that fullness. And if we don't know how to talk about it, if we don't know how to see it, then it's harder to magnify that fullness, including the potentials that, that bring us to our best selves.
1: Yeah, so because we see just one side, you say, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to see the complete picture at
0: any one moment. And it's it's the fear part of our brains, actually. It's us being very yeah. primal <laughs> creatures, which we yeah. are, however sophisticated and educated we are. We see catastrophe. We see danger. And we get riveted by those things. and you know, what is that phrase? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Like that's our amygdala is talking. So I think here in the 21st century, it's time for us to grow up. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, have you seen that as as technology has started to
1: accelerate alongside your career, really? Have you seen that kind of that sense of fear and, and the negativity bias proliferate? Or do you think it's always been there? Is this something you're kind of having to consciously... Not, not fight against, because that's another kind of very polarizing mm-hmm. word, but, you know, something which you're, you're more yeah. aware of now than ever before. Like your content is there to help craft that full conversation, knowing that there is a big part that's perhaps missing.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't feel like there's more evil in the world or or hostility or bad behavior. I, I don't think, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say that. But what it feels to me like is that, technology has put this great big screen like in the corner of every room. (laughs) And we're projected on that screen. Yeah, just this larger than life, technicolor version of us behaving at our worst. Again that's not all that happens there but and in, in fact like I often say to people like I my Twitter feed by which I mean the people I follow on Twitter is this beautiful world of wisdom and nourishment and people creating new realities and caring and and, th- and that's also because because if the digital world is where human beings gather you have all the aspects of humanity there but something like this notion of trolling, right? There's always, there've always been trollish aspects of the human psyche. Mm. And we all know our our personal internal trolls. Mm -hmm. But we never had this public forum for people to project that aspect of themselves. um, Anonymously. Anonymously. (laughs) Anonymously. And to kind of act out of that and actually get a great reward from it because you get attention that way. So, yeah, so there's nothing new to this, but what is new is how visible and outsized it is in our life together. I I think there are as many people leading beautiful lives, and that doesn't mean perfect lives, but doing their best in being generative and healing and creative forces in their communities. I think there are as many of us doing that. But all of this outsized, bad, and in some cases really horrific behavior is very distracting. And that's the problem. It's like like there's this extra layer we have to do just to see the good is to tear our attention away from this riveting spectacle. Yeah. And I
1: mean, ha- <laughs> so how how do you do that? I mean, how do you protect yourself and, and nurture yourself in a time where there is there are those distractions and they are kind of always pulling you away and playing to that human instinct that you talk about, you know, the feels to the mind?
0: Yeah, well, I would say uh, inconsistently. I... I, you know, right now we're speaking when there is a war on in Europe. There are so many layers of atrocity and tragedy to that, and danger. And I found myself go down this rabbit hole in a way that I I would say, you know, I'm I'm sixty one, and so, you know, I'm a generation that this technology landed on, and it, it still feels all like a place I visit rather than a place I belong to, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that um, a a given of the world. I think this may be the most extreme time in my life since the advent of the digital world, the online world, that I just felt compelled to be um, checking in with what's happening, even though, I mean, I'm, I'm starting a couple weeks in here to should be able to kind of extract myself because there's absolutely no value. I, I am not helping. I'm not helping what's happening in Ukraine, mm. nor am I helping myself be present to it by this constant watching that big screen. So, yeah, I have good weeks and I have bad weeks. I know that the times that I have been able to create better boundaries, I'm just healthier. And I'm... yeah. yeah you know and i would even say i'm happier <laughs> and it's challenging it it's interesting as well because you're so aware of media mm.
1: and and we've just talked we just spent some time talking about the landscape of media and how of course there is a truth to what is happening without doubt right yeah yeah but there are other truths to what's happening as well there are i'm sure there are so many Incredible stories of humanity that are taking place as people do their best to help each other in this time of crisis. We see some of them, but we see more of the fear. And yet, despite you know that, and yet despite that, you're still compelled to to read it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I've had conversations with people across the years about the notion that that these technologies though they are so powerful and they have landed on everything we do become interwoven in everything we do and in in many ways changed basic fundamental experiences of being human they are in their infancy yeah and we remain the grown-ups in the room like <laughs> we remain the ones with higher consciousness and so Somehow, I feel like we're in this messy adolescence right now, maybe not the infancy, maybe this has to be a, it's an accelerated process because it's so existential. But we do have to actively reclaim not just what is human, but what is humane and actively bring that to bear in these places where we, in fact, it can be said, are spending a lot of our lives But we're the generation, and and by that I don't mean a certain demographic, I just mean like the generation of all of us alive right now, um, who are in this messy place of of having something happen that has been such a phenomenon, such an all-engrossing phenomenon, and having to navigate this liminal period of waking up, of understanding. First of all, of giving ourselves over, (laughs) and then, you know, seeing what the consequences of this have been. And we're kind of walking with the work of being reflective about that. And it's hard because in that moment, it's like that living the questions thing, right? Yeah. We can't really, we don't see the arrival point, but we have to do this really exacting work of living with what's wrong with not having boundaries and each of us doing our part to reassert our humanity
1: yeah yeah and also but it's sort of living with the question but the question keeps on evolving I think that's what my yeah. concern my personal concern is you know the technology changes so fast yeah that it's like the goalposts keep moving so it's like you can never really reach a point of assessing what actually is happening because as soon as you've got your head around
0: it the next things come along <laughs> yeah it's so true it's also true that uh, for every generalization that you can make, kind of the opposite is true, right? So, for example, and and here I am speaking demographically, right? Like I, it it is true that there are young people who who really fall fully down this rabbit hole, right? I mean, and that's this is being well documented um, for International Women's Day, right? The deleterious effect this can have on young women's um sense of their bodies which always was a problem for uh, us (laughs) and media (laughs) most most girls and women right but now this what do i want to call this i don't know this how hard we are on ourselves and very critical this something there's something natural in that and anxious and desiring to be pleasing and all of that that all of that is so much harder um and you hear these stories, and I know they're true, and I know they're true for a lot of people, of something like TikTok, how completely addictive some of these new uh, platforms are, like TikTok, that people just can't stop watching. And I also have an experience of young people I know up close, including my own children who are in their 20s, that I feel like, I feel like there's also something emerging with people who have grown up with these technologies who are less captive to them than the adults, the older adults around them, Mm -hmm. that somehow they know it, they're savvy, they understand how they're being manipulated. And I feel like at a young age, they're setting much firmer boundaries than I think people I know who are like 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. (laughs) So like both of those things are true. Both of those things are true of the younger demographic. Kind of coming back to that question
1: that I wanted to ask you earlier, which is about how specifically technology is impacting how people ask questions or seek yeah. answers and, and the effect that that is having on conversation and social conversation. Do you see that playing out differently with generations or impacting the way that we have
0: conversations? Yeah, that's such an interesting thing to think about. I had an interview a couple of years ago with the writer Teishu Cole, and I'm I'm not going to get this Mm. quote correctly, but he talks about the loss of not knowing answers to things (laughs) because Uh we live in this time. You know, and I think about this a lot from being from a slightly older generation. There's this reflexive capacity in any moment to look up an answer, right, or to look up a history or a definition, or a background, or a name, and that's you know. And this this may just be the way it is, and and will be from here on out. But it's a really fundamental change. It, there used to be a lot of sitting with not knowing things. Right, a subject would come up <laughs> at yeah at a, at a at a meal table or a coffee shop or in any setting and. Perhaps it would be looked up later in the encyclopedia. So that's kind of interesting. And then the harder reality of that is, and I, you know, personally, I find myself looking up things that are really trivial. Like mm-hmm. that if I never knew, <laughs> if I never got that backstory or that definition, my life would still be meaningful. <laughs> and somehow I think there's something in this that we're going to have to reckon with. But on the deeper question, I don't know. My daughter works with children, and she was telling me yesterday about this eight-year-old who she works with, and she's critical of how much time his parents let him spend on his iPad. On the other hand, she is in awe of really the intellectual adventure he's on all the time. He uses Google Maps to go places. There are ways in which he's he knows things about the world that would have been unimaginable in a previous generation. He can have a conversation about places and history that he would never have had access to, no child would have had access to in the way he does. So I guess it's, again, it's that both and, you know? And then the question for those of us who want to be thoughtful about this is how do we work with with all of this in the ways that we have some influence Mm -hmm. to make the more positive the more humanizing the more enriching experiences that technology makes possible to make those more likely to make those more prevalent one thing we've been
1: talking about quite a lot on the podcast is how when you live in a world that seems quite limitless and where answers are so easy available, it gets harder and harder to accept friction yeah. and to accept the lack of resolution. So I'm interested in that dimension too. How do we have complex conversations and understand that there may not be an answer when we're yes. so used to
0: clicking your fingers and there it is and there we is, go, yeah. you know. And that in fact... The weightier things on which our lives actually depend, spiritually, if not physically, maybe those things that are not accessible as as you can't Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also, I'm thinking also of a phrase that I've heard many times. It's a phrase that's used in the realm of religious wisdom and sacred tradition. And I remember the wonderful late rabbi. Uh, Chief Rabbi of the UK, Jonathan Sachs, using this phrase with me, mm-hmm. that, that know, knowing the difference between what is merely urgent and actually important. So that also gets lost, that kind of antenna for knowing the difference between what is urgent and important. Yeah. And it all just becomes quite overwhelming.
1: Yeah. In it, in it floods. Yeah. So I'm interested to, to stepping away a bit from technology and just coming back to this concept of self. You're obviously incredibly self-aware. How have you come to know yourself?
0: Oh, <laughs> that's a huge question. I really think the raw material of coming to know yourself, whoever you are, is the life you lead, right? That's, that's the fieldwork. And then I think there's this vast world of guidance, support for not just experiencing what you experience, but becoming introspective about that. I grew up in a very, I mentioned a very religious world, and it was a very strict religious world. I didn't have a lot of other kind of spiritual or moral or philosophical resources, but I actually found reading the Bible, which is full of contradiction and kind of the wild drama of (laughs) the human condition, um, was much more open to questioning and much more challenging than actually how it was taught (laughs) Mm -hmm. officially. And... And I think people have whatever you you will possess, whatever you possess in in the world you are with it, you know, whatever resources there are or, or mentors or, or novels to read that take you into getting curious, not just about what happens or why it happens, but how you are responding to things and Mm -hmm. also what is learned in what happens and, this is the work of a lifetime. This is not something that, I don't know. I think that, that this kind of reflection and discernment and learning accumulates mm-hmm. the longer you live. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ever becomes an expert at this. They may be expert at explaining it to other people. <laughs> but I can promise you that in their lives, you, you always become a beginner again. You're never done. Uh, you're never done. Yeah. But you get a perspective. I think one of the greatest gifts for me of growing older is, you know, when we're younger, it, it, that, that whole thing about bet- the difference between what is urgent and important is really hard when you're young. And actually, a gift, a wisdom of, of youth is impatience, right? So you see, I'm always returning to the both end. But at the same time, what I want to say is that it's really hard at, at, at earlier stages in life. Now, everything feels urgent, right? Everything Mm -hmm. feels urgent. And again, a lot of wonderful energy comes out of that. But it's a hard way to live, honestly. And it's not true. Everything is not urgent. And I think as you grow older, you just know in your body, as much because you've lived it as because you've thought about it, that there is a beyond of whatever the moment or the situation is. That doesn't mean it doesn't feel as hard as it feels. But you just know that you're always in beginnings and middles even when things feel like endings that's a weird fact and that's a real relief to know that yeah yeah when you when you can really believe that is great Mm -hmm. comfort
1: the last question i just want to ask you is following on from that that journey to find yourself and to understand yourself reflecting back do you think technology has played a part in that, and and what part has it played, and how do you think it can help us to find ourselves, or, or do you think actually this is something that is best done without
0: technology? Ah, oh, it's a big question. I have, I will confess that I have recently reflected for the first time, um, that this, that this just may all be a terrible mistake for our species. <laughs> for the first time, Krista. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to see the positive potentials, and they're always there. Um, I think we are in an especially messy, as I said, liminal place right now. One thought experiment that I play a lot that really helps me is imagining, let's say, a young historian a hundred years from now, and what will they actually see when they look back? And I am pretty sure that they won't know about. I mean, they may there may be footnotes about Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> but I, I just like th- everything is evolving very rapidly. These things are not forever. Now, now what they morph into, what comes next, is is part of what we have to be. You know, tending, but yeah, I think I think that we somehow this thing just accelerated without uh, <laughs> without asking. I'm kind of back to questions. The human questions weren't asked, right? the The capitalist questions are like how fast and when and how much, and the human questions are why and to what human effect. And how much is enough? And we have to somehow get that kind of questioning and deliberation and consequence built into, ideally, the technologies themselves. But certainly, you know, what we have control over is how we interact with them. Yeah, and that's that's where we are. And that's how I'm thinking it through right now. And again, fitfully sometimes doing a better job than others. I do want to put a plug in for freedom here, too. I do want to put (laughs) a plug for freedom. I don't know if you're going to go there, but, you know, it's a tool, right? It's a pretty simple tool, actually, right? It's easy to use, but it's like we have to avail ourselves. I mean, these are tools we need. Um, This is as important as, you know, Starting a fire, right? These, right? Yes, the technologies are tools, although we treat them as great solutions somehow and foundations. But they're tools, and we also need tools for creating some calm and space between ourselves and and how they can, especially as they're designed with these capitalist questions rather than the human questions like that we use them rather than they use us that's the weird bind we're in right now
1: yeah and as you say asking questions yeah is a good place to start
0: Mm -hmm.
1: krista you have been an amazing guest on the freedom podcast it's been an absolute joy to speak with you thank you so much for spending your time and and talking with us today
0: Oh, such a pleasure! And really, I'm honored to, to to be to be drawn out by you. And yeah, I'm out. I'm like in the community. So think of me out here.
1: Thank you for joining us on Freedom Matters. If you like what you hear, then subscribe on your favorite platform. And until next time, we wish you happy, healthy, and productive days.